Welcome to the Faith Today podcast. I'm Karen Stiller. And I'm Bill Fladeris. Today, we have a conversation between Karen and Tim Challies. Karen, can you tell us about that conversation? Absolutely. So Tim is a very well-known blogger, author, and pastor based in Toronto. And his latest book is called Seasons of Sorrow, The Pain of Loss and the Comfort of God. And basically, it is Tim's almost chronicle slash journal slash exploration of the grief and the journey of, you know, through incredible grief and pain after the death of their son in November 2020. So their son, Nick, died, you know, very mysteriously and suddenly at seminary, tragically, in front of his sister and fiance even. And it it was just, I remember hearing about it because Tim is a, you know, fairly well-known Canadian author who's, you know, his circles go far beyond that. But I remember hearing it at the time and thinking, oh, no. And then please no, because yeah. I think I think that's what we do as parents when we yeah. hear stories like this. And you think how horrible that would be. Exactly. And it was horrible. It is horrible. But Tim has written this beautiful, thoughtful book where he is very transparent about the grief journey, but also... I mean, the word that came to my mind actually was muscular, which maybe doesn't fit here, but his, but I'm going to say it anyway, his muscular devotion to God's will and trust in it, and that that is really what has carried him through this time that, I mean, they're still in the thick of it. It's just two years out. So we really got into that stuff. And, you know, he talked about Nick, he talked about his grief. He talked about their, I would say, unrelenting trust in God's best for their life and God's will for their life. And it was challenging. It was a challenging conversation and a very deeply moving one. Well, it's it's beautiful when someone who's had such an experience is willing to invite you in and say, this is how we dealt with it. I think that journey is probably a different journey for each person that goes through it. But the more we can see how someone else handled it, it can help us if and when the day that we have to face it. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And on his website, which people can find in the notes, he has some resources like letter to, a letter to parents who've lost a child. I think it's called Things That You Can Say to a Parent in Grief. That's not the exact title, but that is what the resource is. is we all have probably said dumb things or we can list off the things you should not say they're not hard to imagine but i think sometimes we're at a loss about what we can say and so he's created this very succinct letter basically that lists off some of those things and we do go into that too so i think this is a tough listen but i think it's really important and i think it'll be helpful to people who are in grief but also walking with people in grief Tim, tell us about your wonderful son, Nick. Yeah, thanks for asking. So Nick was born in early 2000. He was um, our firstborn child and only son. And uh, he was a joy to, to, to have as a son. He very quickly came to love the Lord, know of his own sinfulness, and turn to the Lord in repentance and faith. And that was a, a blessing to us. He was just generally a good kid, you know, a kid who uh, loved to do what was right and tried to honor his parents and, you know, firstborn, responsible, two younger sisters, took them under his wing and so on. So 
he was truly a joy to be his dad. And um, yeah, as he grew up a little bit, he decided the Lord was calling him to go into ministry. And so he decided to pursue that. And while he was at seminary, he met a lovely young lady that he had decided to marry. They got engaged. And then, of course, um, the story ends very early with him being taken by the Lord when he was still young. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened to Nick? I know you ended up getting some information from the doctor, but just walk us through maybe that day. Sure, yeah. It was really a day like any other, as they say. And we were actually just preparing for Nick and his fiance to come back. And so I was just sort of busy around the house doing some painting and things. They were going to come and we we're going to be able to celebrate their engagement with them a couple of weeks later on. But in the evening, he and his fiance and his sister and a bunch of students from the school just went to a nearby park to play, play some games together, just have fun. And uh, we started getting text messages and then phone calls that were just very alarming, saying that Nick had collapsed and they'd called an ambulance and just very broken little pieces of information. But that was eventually followed by the phone call every parent dreads, the one just saying that Nick had passed away. So that there's nothing the doctors could do to revive him. So that, of course, was a complete shock to us. He had no conditions that we knew about, no reason to think anything like that could happen. In the end, the doctors couldn't determine what happened. They could rule out a lot of things, but they did genetic testing that was essentially inconclusive. And so we still don't know, other than his heart simply stopped. The Lord took him. And that is coming up to two years ago, correct? Correct, yeah. Mm -hmm. And you have written this beautiful book called Seasons of Sorrow, The Pain of Loss and the Comfort of God. One thing that really struck me, Tim, as I read it was your relentless trust in God. I I mean, it just, it's on every page. Can you tell us ab about that in your life and how that was a comfort to you? Yeah, yeah. Um, I started writing just because Writing is the way I think. Writing is how I process things. And so in the early days, weeks, and months, I didn't know I was writing a book. I was just writing to, to process things and to bring quiet to my own heart and maybe answers to my own mind. But as I process things, I really found I just had to anchor myself in some way or some ways. And what I really anchored myself to was the character of God, just knowing that God is good. I professed that when everything in my life was good. I had to realize, now I can profess that even when things in my life don't seem so good, that God himself is still good. His character hasn't wavered in this. God hasn't displayed a different side of his character. He hasn't stopped being good. And so myself and my family, we just anchored ourselves there. And then everything else really flowed out of that. So if God is good and God is sovereign, as we profess, this, this was part of his will. This didn't happen apart from God's decree, God's plan, then everything flowed out of that. And so if God is good, then we can find purpose and we can find meaning in this. We can say that God is up to something in this, that there must be some, some good bound up in this, even if we don't see it right away, or even if we can't see it at all on the side of eternity. In fact, you write one of your lines in your book that I made note of is, God makes many promises and the best of them are for our worst times. That's a very powerful insight, I think. Can you unpack that a bit more? Yeah, when, when things are going well, we maybe don't rely on God's promises as much as when things are, are, are not so good. It's when we're really downcast, when we're really sorrowful, when 
when everything around us seems to have fallen apart, that's when we really lean into God's promises. And that's when he makes these beautiful promises of, of course, things like all things work for good for those who are loved by God and called according to his purposes. That that doesn't mean all that much to us when things are good anyways. We don't need that reassurance. But when things seem so so dark, so terrifying, that's when we lean on those wonderful promises. Tim, in the sort of traditional understanding of grief, as we talk about in our culture, anger is always identified as a part of that. I didn't see anger in your journey. Was that a part of it? No, I I can say it honestly never was. In the early days, somebody came to me, somebody I love and respect came to me and really encouraged me to be angry with God, to just sort of shout out my anger at God and maybe shake my fist at the heavens a little bit and just kind of let God know what I think of him for taking my son or allowing my son to be taken, however you understand that. So I did think about that a little bit, but very quickly, I, I, I had to set that, that thought aside. I couldn't bring myself to this point where I would say that, where I would express anger at God, because the only way I could think about that would be to be angry at God would be to suggest that God had done something wrong, that God had made a mistake, and really even that God had done anything at all that was less than the absolute best. And I really do believe that God is up to something good in this world, that God's not ever arbitrary. He doesn't miss anything. All of his plans are good. And so I just had to reconcile myself to the fact that God had done no wrong. And if God has done no wrong, then I can't possibly be angry at him. Anger is a moral judgment. And who am I, this finite little being, to make a moral judgment against God? Wow. It is amazing. And I will say, as I as I read the book, I wasn't noticing that. It was this morning as I was preparing to interview, I I was like, I don't think he got angry that you wrote about. So that is amazing. You do talk about anxiety and depression, and but primarily anxiety when when you realize that anything can actually happen, and that in fact you may experience more loss and more grief like this in your life. That this may not be the end of horrible things in your life, and I. I think as a parent who has not experienced a loss like this, reading your book, I mean, you, you, I think readers just go into, I won't be able to handle this. I can't imagine living through this. Please, God, not us. So tell me about that journey for you, how you have landed in a place of not worrying every time you drop your kid off at the airport. Yeah, God does tell us to be anxious about nothing. You know, we never have a reason to express anxiety because there's a sense in which anxiety is often a sense of distrust toward God. We don't trust what God will bring us. Of course, there is a form of anxiety that just anticipates what's to come. Jesus was anxious in the garden as he awaited his death for very human, sinless reasons. But a lot of anxiety then is essentially transporting ourselves into the future, creating a version of the future and living in that future in our minds and then feeling all that comes with it. And I think we often just need to stop and say, am I feeling anxiety for what's real, what's actually happening? Or am I fabricating a version of the world and living and feeling all the the emotions that come with it? And after Nick passed away, we, we came to this much deeper assessment of who God is in the sense of God is powerful. God just suddenly in a moment intervened in our lives. He didn't 
he didn't ask us our permission. He didn't say, would it be okay if I, if your son is, is taken before you? He didn't uh, give us any premonition or any advance warning. He just moved into our lives, took our son, and, you know, never apologized, nothing like that. And I'm not suggesting he should have, but it just gave us this sense of the true power, the true majesty of this God, that he really does act in this world in the way that he pleases. And so it falls to us then to either rail against him and say, no, you've done something wrong, or just to say, I don't understand, but I believe. I don't, I don't understand why you did this, but I'm focusing on you, on your goodness, on your character. And even though I'm going to mourn, even though I'm going to grieve, even though I might hate the fact that sin entered this world and death through sin, still I'm going to trust, trust in this God. So Tim, speak to the railers right now, because we know, I mean, I know very, you know, faithful Christians who have shook their fists at God. And I know you do too. And that is common advice I've heard given to believers who lose something so precious. So speak to the angry people. So I would say not all anger is wrong. Jesus himself expressed anger. And God, of course, is a holy God. He's a wrathful God. And that's so anger is not intrinsically wrong. Um, And I think we can even be angry. I've heard the distinguish between angry at God and angry with God. So the things that God is angry about, we can join with God in being angry about those things too. And when we understand death in its proper context, we understand that death was brought into this world through sin. Death is an intruder. Death is evil. Death is ugly. And we should hate death. We should hate that it's in this world. The the distinction, in my view, is where we now become angry at God. Because again, that's that's where we're starting to make a moral judgment. We're starting to say that God has done something wrong, as if God could ever do anything wrong, or if God ever would do anything to purposefully harm his children. Now, those who have been angry at God in that sense and have cast judgment on God, there's absolutely forgiveness for that. I'm not saying this is an unpardonable sin, but I would I would encourage people, um, if they've done that, to just take that before the Lord and say, did I sin against you in that anger? Was that righteous anger or unrighteous anger? Yeah, I think that's really um, important that we can we can bring our anger to God and he will forgive us and he can handle it. He can handle it. <laughs> Even if Absolutely. so yeah, that is helpful. Yeah, and I want to say as well that especially in the early days of grief, we're not ourselves. I mean, we are out of whack. Our emotions go crazy, we're our minds are dim and dark, we're confused. And so God's got so much grace for us, I'm sure, in those moments. And none of us are at our finest in those times. Uh, Absolutely. All of us sin in some ways in our times of deep grief, I'm sure. And God asks us to go through a lot in those things. And if we don't do it sinlessly, I know he's got tons of grace and tons of mercy for us. And you write about grief as a response and a process. Can you help us understand that? Yeah, so most people understand grief as a kind of process, and I'm not sure it's as tidy as these sequential steps we go through, as many of us have been taught. But there is a process to grief in that in the early days where it's completely overwhelming, and hopefully as time goes on, we do learn to to live again. We learn to live a new kind of life. You know, there's a new normal on the other side of grief, and that's just a process. That's just time and preaching truth to ourselves. All this has to happen for us to really 
process to, to go through that grief. And then grief is, by definition, really a response to trials we go through. And there's no part of our lives that's outside the purview of, of being a Christian, right? So there's a distinctly Christian way to process our grief. And I think that's what I always want to nudge people toward. And so far as you're able is to respond like a Christian, which means you can respond with submission to God and with, with joy that comes from the Lord. And uh, you can respond with faith. You write, and I think this is your special ability as as a writer who is grieving, uh, but you actually write what you refer to as a manifesto, which it's, it's like a declaration almost. Can you uh, sort of define what you did with that and kind of sum up what it says? Yeah, it was relatively early on that I, I understood just as I pondered things, as I wrote through things, I understood I was going to face some specific temptations in my grief. One of those would be to feel sorry for myself. That's just one of the sins I'm prone to is just feeling like the world's out to get me or people don't love me and just acting out badly because of it. And, you know, the temptation to be angry at God, I understood that would come. And that one, as it happens, came, the, the temptation to feel sorry for myself came from within. The temptation to be angry at God came from outside. And I knew there'd be other temptations as well. And perhaps the greatest of all would be to to act like there was no meaning or no significance in Nick's death, which in a sense would mean there was no meaning or significance in his life. And so as I looked at the scripture and as I, I tried to understand maybe what God was calling me to personally through this, this time of grief, I wrote up what I called a manifesto, just this declaration of how I was going to do my utmost to pass through this time of grief. And it was really just a means of challenging myself and then almost holding myself accountable over time so I can go back and read it on a regular basis and just say, okay, this is, this is what was in my mind and on my heart uh, very shortly after the Lord took Nick. Am I still doing these things? Am I turning my sorrow into service toward others? Am I, am I becoming a better person through this? Or am I allowing this to make me a worse person, a less godly person? How is this shaping my character, shaping my view of eternity and so on? So, Tim, is that an exercise that you would suggest to people to do? Like, it to me, it I'm a writer, it really appeals to me. Um, and I think that it's almost like a touchstone that you created at the beginning to keep going back to, it sounds like. Did it help you? Yeah, oh, it very much helped me, but I'm not sure it would help everybody. So I'm sure it's consistent with my personality, with just my makeup before the Lord, and that's that's well and good. I think others could do the same, perhaps benefit from it, but it's certainly the Bible doesn't say you ought to do it. It's no necessary sign of godliness or dealing well with with these things. So, you know, I, I endured this with my wife and my two daughters, and none of them saw fit to write a manifesto or anything like it, and that's absolutely fine. But they're all grappling with their own grief in their own way. And, you know, it's something I talk about in the book as well, is just as we talk about love languages, I think there are grief languages that in the sense that we all process our grief very differently, consistent with our personalities, consistent with our gender, consistent with whether we're a mother or father, brother, sister, and so on. Well, you do talk about how you're viewing your role as husband and father in the midst of grieving daughters and wife. Tell us more about that. Like you're, And I'm sure this was true for every one of you. You're grieving your own self, but you're also walking with grieving loved ones. 
Right. So one of the things that's very difficult about enduring a trial as a family is you're feeling your own grief, but you're also feeling the grief of those you love. So it would be brutal to endure a death if it was your spouse who was enduring the death and you were just just going through it vicariously. But the reality is each one of you has your own deep sorrow. And yet the people you love the most also have their own deep sorrow. And so this this sorrow, this grief has a way of cascading. And I think if you're not aware of that, the, the whole family can just kind of collapse into this hole that you can't pull out of, or one person described as a grief vortex to me, you know, you just sort of get sucked down into this thing and you're, you're gone, you're swept up in it. And so one thing we had to do was just allow one another opportunity to grieve in our own way and in our own timing. And I'm very thankful that shortly after Nick died, a man who had been through the very same thing about 10 years prior sent me a letter. And one of the most helpful things he said, he just laid that out. And he said, it's been my experience in my own life and in other people I've walked through is that a father or a man is probably going to sort of feel he's reached his new normal quite a bit sooner than the mother, the the woman. And he said, the timeline for you might be four to six months. For her, it might be 18 to 24 months. And that just seems to be the way God has made us and and well and good. What he said, or or what I took from it, was it's that time between the two that you have to be especially careful, where one person is doing quite a bit better, the other person isn't yet, and that's where you might cast judgment on one another or feel like if you're not grieving as deeply as I am, maybe you didn't love as much as I did and so on. So just to be so patient and kind and forbearing with, with others. Yeah. So you mentioned this gentleman who wrote you that very helpful letter. And you you do talk about this circle of sorrow that you are now a part of, of, of parents who've lost children that no one would ever want to be a part of, but there you are now a member. How can we help each other in these times of sorrow? What have you learned about helping other people? One of the first things I've learned is that I think for much of my life, I've been very poor at helping others in their sorrow. And that's something I had to think about before the Lord and pray about and repent of that I think often I've been, I just haven't been thoughtful and I haven't been able to put myself in people's shoes to to realize just how deeply they're grieving and how I can be helpful. And really think any of us can send flowers or a gift card the day after a tragedy happens. But for most of us, we then just say, well, I've sort of done my duty and we move on in life. And with deep sorrows, the loss of a child, the loss of a spouse, you know, real physical challenges, the, the, the suffering goes on for a very long time and therefore the support needs to as well. So I think the Lord's really helped me become a better supporter of people to love them better and over a longer period of time. We were helped by, by so many people and I want to give credit. This is something I've had to think about a lot as well, that Christians love to help other Christians. And we, I think, really feel we're doing the Lord's work. And in a sense, that's true. But our unbelieving people around us, our support network of unbelievers, especially in our neighborhood, we're really in so many ways, every bit as helpful as the the believers. And so I sometimes wonder if we as Christians pat ourselves on the back for being Christians, and really, we're just being human, we're just doing what what any person would do. So I think what Christians can do, especially is bring spiritual support, bring truth, because when we're in our, our in the depths of sorrow, what we need is truth, we need people to come and say, this is what's most true, according to God's word, these are things you can grasp onto and cling to. 
Tim, did you or do you feel a responsibility to grieve or was there a temptation to grieve in any kind of a less honest way or vulnerable way because you had people who weren't believers watching you? They were probably watching you. This this guy, this Christian's son died. How can that be? Did you feel any pressure around that? I appreciate the question. I don't think I felt that pressure. I think there was pressure at times to maybe grieve inauthentically for other reasons, perhaps just before a Christian world that doesn't mind a performance at times. And so very quickly, we had to say, we're going to be just completely honest in what we're going through. And part of our grieving had to be public or pseudo public, because when Nick died, my family lives in America, our church is up here in Canada, and the borders were functionally closed. And so we had to you know, do a service down there. We had to do a service up here. We had to just, a lot of these things had to be public so people could participate across those mostly closed borders. And so we knew that as we did this publicly, we might be tempted to do it inauthentically, but decided, no, we're just going to do it in a way that's consistent with us, with what we believe about the Lord, uh, with the way our church worships, and just press on and do it that way. In the book you write, and I, I don't think this will surprise people, but it it touched me deeply that your fear of death has evaporated. And I think that any reader would understand why that would be the case. And I will tell you that I felt my own fear of death not evaporate, but diminish reading your book. So thank you for that. I think that is a gift that people will discover in the book. But I'd love for you to explain more about that. I've always been, I think, like most people, somewhat afraid of death. And, you know, we we know very little about death. We know little about dying, and we know little about death, especially what happens the moment we're gone. Where do we go to? And what is it to enter into heaven? And does heaven really exist? And and all of this. So I've had I've had big questions and, and big fears. And then the fear of how will my family get on if I'm taken and and they're left. We we sometimes hesitate to really trust the Lord with these things. But when your son passes you on the way, when your son goes to heaven seemingly without fear, or um, when he just goes there bravely, yeah, I think you're left thinking, well, if my son can do it, then I can as well. And not only that, but now I know that he's waiting for me. I trust that he's waiting for me. And we've agreed as a family we're, we're going to believe, we believed all this stuff before Nick died. We're believing it all the more now. We're going all in with what God says in his word. We're going to live according to scripture. We're going to die according to scripture. And we're going to expect, really believe that there will be a great reunion to come beyond. So Nick's death is, I think, taken away that, that fear of death, but largely because it's just caused us all the more to rely on God and to take his, to really take God at his word. Tim, I'm sure in your life as a writer and your, you know, active presence and serving in churches, that maybe you've seen people not <laughs> walk the path you've walked, that they they do turn away, they lose their trust in God somehow. Have you seen that? And why do you think that is? Is it is it I don't know. I, I, cause I don't want to blame those people for doing that. I don't want to imply that they, cause I, I think the temptation to do that would be very real. Like I, 
literally every reader who is a parent who will read this book who has not lost a child. It's just unimaginable. And you do a great job of making it imaginable, actually. And so yeah, just help me or help us understand the people who don't I'm going to use the word recover. I know that's not the right word like you have. Yeah. Um, I, it's a, it's one of the big mysteries of this world that two people can go through the same thing and one of them falls apart. The other one is bettered by it. It seems the other is, is diminished by it. I'm sure others sort of stay the same. I don't know what we do with that other than to say, I mean, God says in his word that there are some people who believe they're Christians. They themselves believe they're Christians and everybody around them does. But when they're faced with great trial, great temptation, they, they fall away. They find out that their faith had no root or, you know, Satan snatched away the, the, the seed that had been planted. And so we should expect that in times of suffering or persecution, some will will actually just prove what was true of them all along that they themselves may not have known, which is they never genuinely did put their faith in Jesus Christ. I think what's more common is people just enter into a time of real difficulty and real spiritual searching and wandering and wondering. And I want to say God is equal to that. And I think we we can bring our very authentic fears and cares and questions before the Lord and just lay them at his feet. And hopefully with an open Bible and with people around us who love us and can guide us, we can, we can see that um, God has done no wrong and that he, he is able to comfort us in our sorrows and give us hope and give us meaning. Yeah, no, thank you. The testimony that is alive in this book is so, so strong. Your ability to almost wrench yourself toward God's will and trusting God's will and seeing God's will and loving God's will is an amazing example, Tim. Well, thank you. I So in the early days, I found myself going back in time, back to the 1800s, 1900s, to this era where many people were losing children, where the, the what, what seems very uncommon today was very common. And reading those writers And one of the things I found them saying again and again is find God's purpose in this and just fulfill your duty. This doesn't happen apart from God's will. God has blessings to be had through this and God is up to something. This God's never, as I said before, never arbitrary, never capricious. He's doing something. And so you can, I think once you find meaning in your sorrows, when you refuse to believe that they are arbitrary and meaningless, then God enables you to to serve all the more. And the way I want to serve most is to serve the people right around me in my local church and my local community when there's tragedies and sorrows, even at the cemetery. When we go to visit Nick, we encounter grieving couples and can minister to them. I think this is primarily what God calls each one of us to do. Um, he equips his people to carry out his will and his work. And if we go through times of deep sorrow and deep suffering. I think we can understand it as God now equipping us to serve him all the more. And you don't need to write a book to do that. That's the thing. You know, primarily he does that in the, in the context of, of the very local Christian life. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's really important to say, I mean, this is with glory to God and thanks to God, we actually don't know what we can handle until it happens. Like I can I read your book, which I did, you know, crying in a ball on my couch and think I could never do this. But I don't know that. 
<laughs> actually. And we are capable with God's help and his strength, obviously, and community and love of living through things that we would never think we could live through. And I mean, you've, your story proves that. Yeah. Well, that's because when God calls us to do something, God equips us for it. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, we didn't pass through this sinlessly. We didn't pass through this perfectly. And we certainly didn't pass through it tearlessly. I mean, these have been mm-hmm. very, very difficult years. And we've really cried out from the very depths of our soul, as I think God would have us do. But we did feel along the way that God was equipping us to something. And again, I'd like to say primarily that will be local. I think the greatest ministry any of us will do is through our local churches or local communities. Um, but, you know, other opportunities as well to reach out to people in their grief and in their sorrow. And I tell you, when you've, you've lost a child, uh, lots of people can reach out and help. But there's something about those people who are in that sacred circle of the sorrowing that you mentioned earlier. There's something about them reaching out and just commiserating with you and bringing you real, real comfort that's so meaningful. And so God continues to equip us for the ministries he's got marked out for us. Yeah. A friend after, I think it was year one, asked you what you learned, which I thought was a a brave question that a friend would ask. And your answer was to weep and to work. Can you explain that? I was thinking about what the Lord calls us to, which is you know, hand to the plow. God has work for us to do in this world. None of us are here for no reason. God's got something for all of us. And he calls us, uh, most of us, to live very ordinary lives and ordinary circumstances, but to serve him with all he's given, to embrace the gifts he's given us, and to just pursue him in our little lives and trust that God makes, makes much of little. So we have a hand to the plow, you know, pressing on toward what God has called us to On the other hand, this life is very, very difficult. We don't pass through our trials like Stoics. You know, God doesn't call us to pretend these things don't hurt or to to endure great pain without weeping. Not at all. You know, our our Lord stood before the tomb of his friend and he wept. And that was the right thing to do. And so even as we're carrying out our duty in this world and serving God, we're weeping. It's a hard, hard life. And uh, most of us, I think, just barely make it across the finish line into heaven and we're We're old and we're beat up and we're tired and we're worn, but then we get to go to glory and be with the Lord and and those tears are dried. So it's a great promise we have ahead of us. Tim, I just think that's the perfect note to end with and say thank you. I will ask you one last question and just what are your hopes for this book for the readers who find it? I'm hopeful that it will minister to people who have experienced this particular loss. And already I just got an email from somebody who finished the book and three days later their child was taken and just expressing that they were thankful they had read it in advance as they didn't know, but it was equipping them for that loss. Another would be that it comforts anyone who's suffering because most suffering is very similar. You know, whether we're mourning the loss of a child or the loss of a spouse or the loss of a job or the loss of our health. Suffering has a lot in common, no matter the particular circumstances. So I'm hoping it will help people endure their sorrows with faith. And then I'm hoping that it will bring some people to faith, that as it's handed to people who maybe don't know the Lord, that they would be able to see in the pages of this book a God who's good and a God who loves them. And again, a God who's up to something in this world and really can be trusted with our our deep griefs, our, our deep fears, our deep sorrows. Thank you for listening. Check out more podcasts and subscribe to Faith Today magazine for free at faithtoday.ca. 
This podcast is produced by the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. If you enjoyed it, please rate or share it.